Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So unfortunately, the podcast for this week, we had a few technical difficulties at the beginning. Fortunately, it was only at the beginning, and so we only missed a few minutes. Uh, all I did was read Matthew 10, 1 through 4, which says, Jesus called his 12 disciples to them and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And we talked just a little bit about the fact that we were starting a series on who the apostles were, and that today we were just going to talk about the calling of each of those apostles. And then we began to talk just a little bit about how Andrew and John were disciples of John the Baptist, and this is how they met Jesus, and that John pointed out Jesus as the Messiah very clearly to them right at the beginning, and they followed Jesus to his home, and they... Uh, got to know him. And so that's what we missed. And so we'll jump right into the podcast just right about that point. So one thing about the term Messiah, let's talk about that is just very, very briefly. So the, the Israelites have been waiting forever, basically. So there are prophecies going all the way back to the book of Genesis and throughout Genesis. But ever since Abraham, it's been very clear to them that there is somebody who's coming through the lineage of Abraham who's going to rescue the Israelites and rescue the Jews. He's going to be the hero. He's going to usher in the kingdom like we talked about in the Kingdom of Heaven series. And so that's what they've been waiting for. And at the time of Jesus, just before that, there had been a flurry of false messiahs. There had been a lot of people claiming to be the Messiah. And so for for Andrew, for Simon to go, I'm sorry, for Andrew to run go tell Simon, hey, we found the Messiah, they've probably been waiting, they've been looking, they've been hanging out with John the Baptist because they saw this was coming. And, and it's a big deal. He's saying we found the real one. This is actually it. Okay. So they tell Simon, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. To which Simon probably said, yes, correct. You got that. <laughs> you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So this is Peter. Right? So we've got Andrew, we've got John, we've got Peter here. So this is the calling of the first four. Now you may have noticed that I've only mentioned three here. But we'll show you. So we've got Simon Peter, we've got Andrew, we've got James and John. So John, who writes the book of John, is the son of Zebedee, and his brother James, I believe it, it's reasonable to assume, because we know James is the very next one called, it's reasonable to assume that John also talked to his brother, just as Andrew talked to his brother. It doesn't tell us that here, and perhaps John didn't bring James right away, like Simon did, or like Andrew did, rather, but it is very possible he'd already spoken to James. So these four have had some contact with Jesus at this point. Now here's what's interesting. Some of you may have heard a different story about the calling of Peter and Andrew and James and John. And in fact, I know that when I was a young Christian, I often heard the story told this way, a story which exists but sounds very different the way it was told to me. Often you may have heard the story that Peter is fishing, and Jesus comes up and says out of the blue, follow me, and Peter leaves everything behind and follows Jesus without a second thought. And it's been shared to me as an example of the kind of commitment we should have. 
Let me just ask you something for a second. Does that really even sound wise? I mean, I don't want to teach my kids to respond that way to the charismatic leader who comes to them. <laughs> I don't want them to be like, so when this guy comes to you and he says, come with me, I'm the Messiah, just believe him. Don't ask for proof. Don't ask for credibility. Don't question him. Just leave everything. Leave your nets, leave your father, leave your, your jobs, leave your occupation, and chase off after this guy. This was literally shared to me as what a good example it was, but I'm terrified of thinking of that as an example for my kids. And what's interesting is, according to the text, that can't have been the first time that Peter and Andrew and James and John met Jesus. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? They already have met him. They've, they've spent at least this day with him, all afternoon, at least Peter and Andrew and John. Maybe James, maybe not. I'm speculating James is part of this. And we don't know that's the only time they spent with Jesus. And I suspect it wasn't. So they go, they hang out with him. There's another interesting thing that happens. You could even say, well, why didn't they go with him right then? Why didn't they go back to fishing if they were, you know, this shows a lack of commitment. Well, I'll tell you one reason they didn't follow him is because you know what happens immediately after this story? Jesus leaves everybody and goes into the wilderness for 40 days and says, don't follow me. <laughs> so he said to Peter and Andrew and James and John, go think about it for 40 days. You've heard about the Messiah. I'm going to go deal with that myself for 40 days. You also take 40 days to think about whether you really should follow me. It's a very different story than kind of this, this, this rash sort of jumping into things that I sometimes have heard. Okay, so that's what happens. He goes off into the wilderness for 40 days. They've spent this, this time with them, and they go back to fishing. Why go back to fishing? Because that's their job. That's what they do. That's how they survive. That's how they live. They can't just sit around for 40 days in prayer, because they need to eat. And then we come to Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 through 13, and 18 through 22. And it says this, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Now, it's interesting that we get a marker, right? Every once in a while we get a time marker. When we're trying to put things together chronologically, this is an important one. We're told here in Matthew, we'll be told the same thing in Mark later, that Jesus heard that John had been put in prison. Which John are we talking about? John the Baptist. So this is John the Baptist has been arrested, and so Jesus withdraws and says to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali. Now, Jesus ends up making Capernaum a sort of headquarters. He tends to go out on these missions and always return to Capernaum. It seems to be just sort of a place that he's comfortable. For some reason, it's a place he keeps coming back to. Also happens to be a place for James and John and Peter and Andrew live. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting an end of the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. So this makes a little more sense, doesn't it? This isn't the first time they've met him. They've had an interaction with him. Now he's walking down, and it's not like he just randomly sees two people. He sees two people he knows. And they're brothers, and they're fishing together, because that makes sense too. It's a family business. And he says, come with me. Still amazing they leave their nets, but maybe not as amazing as you think. And I'll show you that in a second, too. But at the moment, anyway, they drop their nets, and they follow him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing the nets. And Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat, and their father, and followed him. And if you don't picture the father yelling after his kids, what am I supposed to do with all this fish? Where are you going? Then you're not reading this like a human being. <laughs> 
But again, he's met them all before, and they've all met him before. They did not just follow this, this guy who just randomly said, follow him. They already were, he was testified to by John the Baptist, and they hung out with him for a day at least, maybe more, and then they had 40 days, and they've been thinking about it for 40 days. Are we going to follow him? So when he comes by, he says, hey, follow me. They're like, yep, we've been thinking about it. But once again, there's a reason, and I think it's the wrong reason. When we read this, we assume that when it says they left their father and they left their nets, that it means they left them forever. I don't think that's what happens at this moment. I think this literally just means right at this moment, they put down their nets. They left their father. They followed Jesus. But you know what? If you keep reading the chronology, guess what they're doing the next time we see them? They're fishing. <laughs> they haven't given up their occupation. They haven't changed their life yet. Jesus is just like, follow me. So they do. They follow him. And so things happen along the way. So we go on. Mark tells us the same time marker. This is after John the Baptist has been arrested. But then Mark gives us some more information. He tells us this is what happens that day when he asked them to follow him. It says, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. So they're with him for a few days, and as they're there, Sabbath comes, and he goes into the synagogue, and they begin to teach. And it says, the people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. As a weighted phrase, let me just say that what it means is that Jesus is teaching in a way which is not always referencing and relying upon previous precedent and tradition in law, which is both dangerous and unusual. But he teaches as someone who speaks as if he knows the law even better than previous teachers of the law, previous rabbis, if you will, previous tradition. He's giving them new ideas. He's giving them a different way to look at it, and he's quoting himself instead of quoting other rabbis or other teachers. And again, this can lead you in either direction. Either this is a really smart guy or a really dangerous guy. But they're amazed. They're really impressed. And the other thing he does, for those who are thinking he's dangerous, is he goes on and he does miracles and he does healings. He does things to verify his authority, to give credit to what he's doing. And one of the miracles he does is described this way. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Now, again, I just like walking through scripture. I just like walking through too. One of my front row sitters here was like, somebody was just sick. She was just sick, and now she has to get up and wait on them. Is that what you're thinking? That's why you're feeling better. Will you make us lunch? Let's just see that not as something Jesus required, but as something that she was so grateful that she voluntarily did. Um, but, but here's the other thing you notice. That is a cultural marker, yes. But here's some other thing that strikes me as odd. I don't know about the rest of you, but whose house is this? Simon and Andrew. So what we have is we have two grown men living together, sharing a house with Peter's wife and mother-in-law. Presumably, I assume his wife also lives there. It doesn't say that, but it would be weird if she didn't. Unless she's dead, which is a possibility we actually don't know. But, so, but it just reminds us culturally everybody lived together. Right? They were big families, and they just all lived together and worked together. Simon and Andrew are probably the, the money makers and the caretakers, right? We don't hear about their dad the way we do about John and James, so it seems very possible that their fishing is keeping this whole place afloat. But what's interesting is to follow the chronology and remember this marker, right? So first, 
They're in the boats. Jesus comes by, says, follow me. They go to the synagogue, and then they go heal Peter's mother-in-law. So here's where we've been with these four. First, they meet Jesus through John the Baptist. Then they spend the day with him. Then he goes off for 40 days, and they go back to fishing. Then John the Baptist is arrested, and Jesus calls them to follow him, which they do. And on that day, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. But here's something interesting. Luke also records the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And then Luke records the calling of Peter and Andrew and James and John. And there's two ways to read this. One is, perhaps the chronology is a little confused. I happen to be someone who believes the Bible is inerrant. I also believe, though, the Hebrews don't care about linear chronology the way we do. That is just a reality. They are the original memento you know, filmmakers. They aren't that concerned about putting things in the right order. It's just the way they think. The Greeks are very linear thinking. Our Eastern tradition, our Western tradition, rather, comes from the Greek line of linear thinking. So it is possible the chronology is just confused. But there's another possibility. And that's that this is actually the third time that Jesus calls them to come. That it shows that they're still deciding. They're still wrestling with it. That what they probably thought, and I think as we read this third calling, if you read it with this in mind, I think you'll actually see. Because it's different. It doesn't read like the other two. Jesus doesn't simply come up and say, follow me. He goes through this whole show with them. Because I think what he's doing is he's saying, it's time to decide. I think what he wants to say to them is, you've been doing fine. I'm not rebuking you. You've been following me. But after you follow me, you go back and you fish at night. And you're worried that you're not going to be able to keep up. You're not going to be able to protect and preserve and provide for your families if you follow me. And that's understandable. But I want to show you why it's time to make a decision and trust that, that, you, that I, that God, can provide for you as well. So let's read this third calling and see how this flows. Luke 5. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left here by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. So remember, we saw this in the Kingdom of Heaven parables too, right? That sometimes there's so much crowd, so many people pushing against him, he gets out into a boat, that becomes like his stage. You can back up a little bit, you can talk to the whole crowd. In this case, he looks, and there's some fishermen washing their nets. It says they're washing their nets. It turns out they're actually fishing as well. But they're washing their nets. They're there, and he gets into one of the boats, and it happens to be the one belonging to Simon. So Simon's gone back to work. He's still fishing. But it also seems pretty likely they know each other, doesn't it? It doesn't say he just saw this guy. He says he saw Simon. So he's like, hey, Simon, why don't you put out and I'll teach from here? And Simon's like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm one of your people. Absolutely. He's still helping. He doesn't. You know, neglected his commitment. He's just also still working, which is really reasonable. So then he sat down and taught people from the boat. When he finished speaking, so what he teaches them is irrelevant to this story. That's just like something that happens. Now that part's over. He's sitting in the boat with Peter, and he says to Simon, "Put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch." Okay, they weren't fishing; they were washing their nets. So he says, "Put your nets back out and let down the nets for a catch." And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard, hard all night and haven't caught anything. This does bring up the possibility that they're fishing at night and going with Jesus during the day. We've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. This is very much in the veins of you're dumb, you don't know your job, I know my job, but I like you, so I'll do the rest. Right? Uh, because you say so, I'll let down the nets. And when they've done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets begin to break. So they signaled their partners. This is fascinating. We discovered their partners are actually John and James. 
They weren't their partners before, as far as we know. So is this a new partnership that's been created ever since they followed Jesus together? Very possibly. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Peter's response is interesting, isn't it? I mean, again, it's a miracle. Maybe that's all. Maybe that's all. Maybe Peter is just saying, Wow, this is incredible. There were no fish here moments ago. This should not have happened. You are in charge of the fish in the sea. That's amazing. You're God. I'm not. But he already believed Jesus was the Messiah, or at least ostensibly he did. We were told he did. We were told that's why he came to Jesus, or at least he's thinking about it. What if it's also possible, though, that Peter is responding to a sense of indecision that he currently had? That he went back to fishing because he wasn't really sure God could provide. And what did Jesus just show him? I can give you as much fish as you want, like that. Right? Isn't that what Jesus revealed to him? I can take care of you. He didn't even say, oh, don't fish anymore. But he did show him, I can take care of it. You spent all night, and, and you didn't get to sleep because you were fishing. And in, in you know five minutes, I gave you more fish than you've ever seen. And yes, Peter's amazed at it, but maybe he's also confessing a little bit his indecision. He's saying, I am a sinful man. I did not recognize you for who you were. I delayed. I keep coming back to the nets. And that would also explain Jesus' response. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. Now, again, he could just mean, don't be afraid of me, even though I am in charge of the fish. But he could also mean, don't be afraid of what it means to follow me. It'll be all right. Because he says this, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Notice at this moment, he's not just asking him to follow him. He's not just asking him to put down his nets. He's asking him to change occupations. Isn't he? You were a fisher of fish. I can do that like that. Now you're going to be a fisher of man. Changing your occupation. I'm calling you to be my disciple. Up until now, you've been following me. You've been keeping an eye on me. You've been thinking about it. But now it's time to decide. And Simon and Andrew and James and John, it says this. So they pulled up their boats on the shore, left everything, and followed him. Do you hear the difference in tenor of they pulled their boats up on the shore and left everything from they dropped their nets and left their dad and went? One is just sort of a hurried stopping what they're doing. The other is they pulled their nets on shore, their boats on shore. It's like, we're done. Now, by the way, does this mean they never fish again? No. <laughs> it doesn't mean that at all. And that's okay. God didn't say you're not allowed to fish anymore. But I think he's just saying it's time to make that decision. And so it says they left everything. So that's our first four. That's where we see Simon and Peter. And I'm Simon and Peter. How I keep on calling your son. That's where we see Andrew and Peter and James and John. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip. Finding, there he is. I had to find Philip. Finding Philip. He said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethesda. Now, I think there's every reason to believe that Philip follows the same cycle that Peter and James and John and Andrew did. To think that this is the first time Jesus has seen Philip, I think is unlikely. 
Even the fact that it says finding Philip. It's almost like Jesus has gone out to find the guy he already knew. He's already had contact with, right? So he says to Philip, follow me. And Philip not only does, but it says Philip found Nathaniel. Who, by the way, is also called Bartholomew. Now, the reason that I think Bartholomew and Nathaniel are the same person is the same reason we thought that Judas and Thaddeus were the same person. Was because in the list, Bartholomew is in some lists and Nathaniel in other lists, and they are the two missing people that go together. Um, there's also reason that Bartholomew might go by the name Nathaniel. We'll talk about that another time. Philip so found Nathaniel and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. Now, this is as clear a statement of Jesus' messianic nature as any of the others we've seen. Saying we found one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets wrote, he's saying the entire Old Testament is about this guy. Which means he's the Messiah. So Philip goes to Nathaniel with the same message that John the Baptist went to James and John with, with the same message that Andrew went to Peter with. But this is the guy we've been waiting for. He says Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. That's an interesting thing that Philip says, because Jesus is not from Nazareth. It's interesting he chose to even say that, but it's no less interesting than Nathaniel's response, which is, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? So we see in Nathaniel perhaps a little bigotry, yes? The reality is that Nazareth is not a place of low people. Nazareth is actually a place of a lot of highly religious people. So there's a lot of questions, and when we get to Nathaniel, we'll talk about this more. But there's a lot of questions about why he responds so strongly to the idea that the Messiah can come from Nazareth. I think the main reason is the prophets don't say he comes from Nazareth. They say he comes from Bethlehem. Which we know is true. <laughs> that that is where Jesus ends up being born. But that may be what he meant. Now it's also possible, there's lots of other ways to read it. Read it. Perhaps Nathaniel's one of those people who doesn't like anybody else finding something else before him. Right? Maybe he's just like, no, no, you're not allowed to tell me about the Messiah. I know about the Messiah. I've been seeking the Messiah. I've been waiting for the Messiah. There's no way this guy you found in Nazareth is the Messiah. There's a reason that he might be responding that way, because he does seem like a guy who has earnestly been seeking the Messiah. That's what we're going to see here in a second. Whatever the reason is, he responds that way, and Nathaniel very wisely, instead of arguing, I mean, Philip, instead of arguing with him, very wisely just says, well, come and see for yourself. Maybe I'm wrong. Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approach him, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Gosh, there are so many ways to read this sentence, aren't there? Is it ironic? Is this a moment of divine sarcasm from the Lord himself? You know, this Nathaniel just said Jesus was like, no good because he came from Nazareth. Here Jesus, first thing he sees is he says, I see your heart. There's no deceit in it. Is he... Is he picking on him a little bit because he's too self-righteous? Or is he actually paying him a genuine compliment? That what I see in you, Nathaniel, is a heart that seeks me pure. That doesn't mean everything about you is pure. <laughs> but when it comes to your pursuit of the Messiah, I see that you're an Israelite serious about it. And sincere. It says, I saw you while you were under the fig tree before. Oh, it says, here's truly an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. How do you know me, Nathaniel asks? And you got all of that, right? Someone comes up to you and says, oh, there's somebody who's just really wonderful. And you say, oh, yeah, how did you know me? 
But I think if we take it seriously, I think it is a recognition that Jesus says, I see that you are sincere in your pursuit. And Nathaniel says, yeah, he's right. How did he know that? He just barely saw me. How could he know that? How do you know me, Nathaniel? Asked, and Jesus answered, I saw you while you, was, you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. This is a really large reaction to this statement, isn't it? I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called. There's a lot of argument, a lot of discussion among commentators about why this creates such a large reaction from Nathaniel. It seems pretty clear it doesn't mean that Jesus sort of literally happened to be passing by and saw Nathaniel, because that's not that amazing, right? There must be something else going on here. But let's go on. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. Even Jesus seems a little taken aback by Nathaniel's reaction. He's like, you think that's a big deal? He says, you will see greater things than that. Yeah. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So we'll talk a little bit more about this when we get to Nathaniel, but let's just write down a couple of options. First thing is, we know, all we really know, is that though Jesus saw him under the fig tree, and that phrase, that statement, was very impressive to Nathaniel. It changed his mind about who Jesus was. In a whole hundred years. So what could it mean? It could be literal, but not, not but it could be supernatural literal. So it could be that Nathaniel's impressed because Jesus saw him when he knew no one else was there. That Nathaniel knew he was alone under the fig tree. Perhaps he goes there to pray and to meditate. Perhaps this is where he goes to seek the Messiah, the understanding. And he knows nobody's around. It's his secret place. And Jesus says, I saw you there. So in a literal way, Jesus says, I saw you where no one could have seen you. And Nathaniel says, well, that's impressive. And in this interpretation, to be impressed that Jesus was able to see him in a moment when he was alone, it's understandable why Jesus then would be like, that's really not that big a deal. If you think it's impressive that I was able to see a distance, wait until you see what else is going to happen. There is another explanation, though, which traces back in tradition a fair way, but we don't know exactly where it comes from, and therefore, we don't know the accuracy of this contention. But the contention is that the phrase, under the fig tree, is actually a metaphor. And that it's a metaphor that Israelites use meaning, waiting for the Messiah. Some argument comes from Jonah. That's a weird place for it to come from, since Jonah was not waiting for the Messiah when he was sitting under the fig tree. But there are some who argue that it's a metaphor that they understood. It's a phrase that meant you, that if you, were, if you said, I'm waiting under the fig tree, it was like code of, I'm waiting for the Messiah. And if this is the case, in one sense it's less impressive because he's not seeing anything physical, but it's more impressive because Jesus is seeing him in Daniel's heart. And that goes back to the comment about there being no deceit, which could be a compliment on his sincerity. I see that you are pursuing the Messiah. And he says, how did you know me? And Jesus says, I know. I saw you looking for me before Philip even told me you about me. I've been aware of you. Which would be a little creepy. I mean, creepy in a, in a way that would strike you at all. You're like, well, how, does, how did he know all this? So that's possible. In that case, Nathaniel also, though, let's be fair, he's human. He's also a little impressed because of his own self-interest. Jesus is calling him a very faithful pursuer of the Messiah, and he's like, oh, you do know me. That might be part of it. There's a third possibility. I have no proof for this, but it sounds elegant to me, and I like it. So you don't, you don't have to buy this. But it makes the story fit for me. 
I think Nathaniel is somebody who's been looking for the Messiah. I think he is somebody who's been pursuing the Lord. I think he has been waiting. And I think he does spend time meditating and praying under the fig tree. I think he goes out every day and he prays and he meditates and he looks for the Lord. What if on this particular day, what if when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, he doesn't simply mean, I saw you, but we saw each other. Have you ever had that, would you ever use it that way? Like, oh, I saw you at the grocery store. Well, yeah, we saw each other at the grocery store. And what if the context in which he saw Nathaniel was in a vision? What if Nathaniel's sitting under the fig tree and he's praying for the Messiah, and God says, you have been waiting for the Messiah, guess what, he's coming today. And Nathaniel doesn't see a clear picture of him. It's not like he would recognize him if he saw him on the street, but he knows that he's seen that the Messiah is coming. And then Philip comes and says, I found the Messiah. And Nathaniel's like, that's awesome, but he can't be the one from Nazareth, because Jesus, God told me he's coming, and that can't be where he's coming from. And then Jesus comes up and says, hey, you and I, we already met. I already saw you at the victory. And he realizes, oh, he knows the vision I have. And he's saying that he is the answer to that vision. I have no idea if this is true, but it also makes a little more sense in the last phrase, where then Jesus then says, you will see the heavens open up, and you will see angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man. That is a description of an Old Testament vision of what we call Jacob's Ladder, where angels were ascending and descending. And so if he's saying you think that vision was impressive, you're going to see visions that equal Ezekiel's visions. You're going to see visions that are even greater than what you saw under the tree. I have no idea if that's what it means. Whatever it was, we know that Nathaniel hears him say, I saw you under the fig tree, and Nathaniel's response is, you are God. <laughs> so, you can wrestle with why that was his response. After Nathaniel comes Thomas, except it doesn't. There is no recorded calling of Thomas. We know Thomas was called. You know how we know he's called? Because he's there. <laughs> That's like saying we know the world was created. Do you know how we know the world was created? Because we're standing on it. But there's no record of his calling. In fact, there's almost no mention of Thomas at all except in these lists. John, if it were not for John, we know nothing about Thomas. We get two little stories about Thomas. Unfortunately, one of them has saddled Thomas with the name Doubting Thomas for all of his legacy, which is really unfair and unfortunate. But we'll talk about that when we get to Thomas. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And so we have Matthew, who in the Gospel of Matthew is called Levi, and the Gospel of Mark and Luke is called Matthew. Clearly the same person. In fact, there's a very good reason why Matthew calls himself Matthew and the others don't. When we get to Matthew, we'll talk about that. I already hinted at it, but I should actually referred to it in the Kingdom of Heaven parables, but we'll get into detail about it in the Matthew, I think it's fair to say that again, probably follows the cycle of Peter and Andrew and James and John. So Matthew is a tax collector. That means he's a Jew, sort of, what? That would be a gino, right? We talk about rhinos, I hate that phrase. Republican in name only, it's be Jew in name only. This is like Levi, they would have seen him as a traitor. They would have seen him as not a real Jew. Because he collected taxes for the Roman oppressors. He robbed his own people to give to the oppressors, is how they would have seen it. 
And Matthew seems to be, to a degree, sort of comfortable. That's who he is. So for Jesus to come up in the middle of his sitting in a tax collecting booth and say to him, come with me, and for him to get up with no prior knowledge of Jesus would be indeed miraculous. Is it possible that's what happens? Yes. But given the stories of Andrew and Peter and John and James, I think it's also possible we're like this. You know where tax collector booths are situated? At the entrance to the town. You know who keeps coming in and out of Capernaum on a regular basis? Jesus. You know who you can hardly avoid hearing about when you're sitting in the entrance to Capernaum? Jesus. You know where Jesus did most of his most amazing miracles? Capernaum. So here's Matthew sitting in the entrance to the town. When he's not in the entrance, he's in the center of commerce. He's always in the middle of all the activity. And when he's sitting there, Jesus keeps coming in and out. Jesus is a guy we know who's not afraid to talk to anybody at a time. So I'm sure along the way, every now and then, he's like chatting up Matthew. And the apostles were probably like, what are you doing? Talking to him. And Jesus was like, keep it quiet. <laughs> so that's what he does. And Matthew keeps hearing about these miracles that keep happening. Interestingly enough, when it says here, as Jesus went on from there, the story that has just happened, one which Matthew undoubtedly heard about if he didn't actually witness it from where he was sitting, anything like that. The story that just happened is the one of the paralytic, where Jesus is preaching and the crowds are so big and they want to bring this guy to him to get him healed, but they can't get him to Jesus, so they actually dig through a roof and lower the paralytic down in. And when Jesus heals the guy, guess what he does? He doesn't just heal the guy. First he says, do you want to be forgiven of your sins? Which he doesn't do for everybody that he heals. And he forgives this man of his sins and heals him, which is a double whammy of saying, I really am the Messiah. I really am the Redeemer. And so maybe Matthew hears this story and it impacts him as he's sitting out there in the tax collecting booth. Because maybe one of the things that's kept him from being a Jew's Jew is that he knows he can. He already knows he's too far gone. His sins are too many. His disappointments are too large. Nobody even tries anymore. His family's abandoned him. His friends have all left him. The only friends he has left are people who are at the lowest echelon of society. And so he just never thought Jesus would have anything to do with him. Then Jesus forgives the paralytic, walks out of that building, walks right up to the tax collecting booth and says, hey, you want to come with me? And he does. We'll read more about Matthew's story, but that's his calling. And then we have James, son of Alphaeus. James is known elsewhere as James the Less. Sometimes this is translated as James the Minor, James the Little, James the Younger. Good. Don't you just love it? Who are you? I'm James the Less. Who's that over there? That's James, son of Zebedee, also known as James the More. Great. Gosh, I want to know the story of James the Less. I want to know the story of James, son of Alphaeus. You know what the problem is? We don't. <laughs> we, we know almost nothing about this James. Now, we know so little about him. And, and, and this is, have you ever noticed how many Marys are in the New Testament? James is the same. James is the male equivalent of Mary, which means, you know what it means? It means we do the same thing with James we do with Mary. 
We try to make them all the same person. <laughs> we, want, we want to say, oh, this is James, the brother of Jesus. Really unlikely. The reason it's really unlikely this is James, the brother of Jesus, is because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that James didn't become a Christian until after Jesus came to life. And I can buy that. If Jesus is my brother, I'm not going to be there until he comes back to life. Right? Also, he's James, son of Alphaeus, which is interesting because there's some question about the son of Alphaeus. There's also a James who's the son of Mary, and there's a Mary who's married to Alphaeus, who is the Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister, which would make James Jesus' cousin. Well, that could be. That's my big question. <laughs> I have that written, written right here. Really? Two Marys in the same family? Yes, I agree. Yeah, I understand there was like a George, George, and yeah. George, and George, but aren't you George Farmer? The second, yeah, exactly. the third. Uh, Newhart, Larry, Daryl, and Daryl. <laughs> you know what else? Matthew, Levi, is also called son of Alphaeus. So that means maybe Matthew and James are brothers. But you know what's weird about that? They never mention it. They tell us James and John are brothers. They tell us Andrew and Peter are brothers. Why do you want to tell us Matthew and James are brothers? Because they're probably not. I expect Alphaeus is just like James and Mary. <laughs> so we got all these James. There were two men James. And they get very ambiguous. And the worst part is Mark. The book of Mark. Mark explains there are three James within this. He tells us that there's James, the brother of Jesus, and Joseph. He tells us there's uh, James, the son of Zebedee. And he tells us there's James, the son of Alphaeus. But after saying that once, he then continues throughout the rest of the gospel to only call anybody who's named James, James. <laughs> Which means some of the stories might be about James the less, but we have no idea. <laughs> Matthew seems to use those phrases more consistently, so we do get some hints from him. He almost always calls James the brother of John and the son of Zebedee, so we can usually separate him from these other things. Bottom line is, when we get to James, we won't have a lot to say about him. We don't know how he was called. We don't know why the poor guy is saddled with being James the last. <laughs> Or younger. I really just wanted to just be junior. You know, or something like that. They call yeah. it like little James. Yeah. Like, James yeah. like James, son of John, was tall. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Regular size, you're really a big size, you All right. So, anyway, that's James. Then we have Thaddeus, also known as Jude. Why? Who knows? There are, again, a lot of people who have duplicate names. It's not that unusual. The only reason we know Thaddeus and Jude are the same is, again, the way they're used in the list, we can see that they're the same people. And sometimes they're called Jude, and sometimes they're called Thaddeus. We do know that Jude, he's sometimes referred to as Judas. And it does make sense to me that you might want to separate yourself from Judas Iscariot. There's no calling recorded, but guess what his dad's name is? Alphaeus. <laughs> Apparently, either all of these guys are brothers, or, Alphaeus is a really popular name in that generation. It was like all the Alphaeuses named their kids James. And we have Simon, the Zealot. Simon the Zealot we know nothing about. We don't know his calling, and we don't know anything about him except he's a Zealot. But I'll tell you this, 
because we know so little about him, at least more than one pastor, I know this for sure, more than one pastor over the course of his lifetime has occasionally confused this Simon with Simon Peter. How do I know that? Because I'm one of those, more than one of those pastors. <laughs> All we know about Simon is he's a self. We will talk about what that means, because that actually is really important. For now, that's all we know. And then we have Judas Iscariot. The only person who gets more text, the only apostle that gets more text than Judas Iscariot is Peter. Peter and Judas we know more about than even John, than any of the other apostles from the Gospels themselves. So these are the twelve. These are the people we know. These are the twelve apostles. These are the ones that have been called. These are the people we're going to take a look at as we go forward over the next several weeks. There's a couple of things, though, that we already learned. There's a couple of things we already know just based upon Jesus' calling. I'm going to give those to you very briefly, and then we'll be done for the evening. Number one, Jesus calls his disciples and invites them to accept or reject him, which is the opposite of most rabbis. So let's talk about this for a second. First of all, the term rabbi is very, very complicated in the time of Jesus because there's no official position until after 70 AD. There are no actual rabbis. So why does the word keep popping up in the Gospels? <laughs> because the term existed, just not the title. But the term meant was teacher. After AD 70, rabbi became an official position, and you know why? Because what official position suddenly became unimportant after the temple was destroyed? Priests. Priests. What did you have to be able to do in your own house, in your own community, that you could no longer do at the temple? Worship God, follow the laws, do the sacrifices. Who could help you do that? Some local teacher who understood how to do it. So what originally was just a, a phrase that just meant teacher, became a position because it became really important after the temple was destroyed. So we do see Jesus called by this title, and there is this unofficial thing that rabbis used to do that becomes more cemented after the temple was destroyed. And what we know about the rabbis in Jesus' time is the way they worked as unofficial teachers of the law. Without priestly position or particular heritage, they had to be Jews, but they didn't have to be Levites. What we do know is that typically what would happen is these teachers would become famous because they were so smart, like Jesus. People saw him teach in the synagogue, and they were like, that's impressive. And so you have these teachers who would teach, and people would think, that's impressive. But the rabbis never went out and went to somebody and said, come be my disciple. You know why they never did that? Because they didn't have to. And because when you do that, you know what might happen? Somebody might say, nope, I don't really want to do that. I want to fish. What happened is people would come to the rabbis and say, I really love the way you teach. I want to be like you. That's what disciple means. I want to be like you. I want to do what you do. I want to teach like you teach. I want to read the word like you read the word. I want to understand your interpretations of scripture. You have to understand, too, that the Jews have always been into a very dialectic approach to learning. They did not, like the evangelicals often do, say, this is the doctrine of my job as a teacher is to make sure we all hang on it. They said, here's what people before me have said, here's where I disagree, let's argue. So people would come to these rabbis and they would say, I want to be your disciple. You know what the rabbi would do? 
you would either say yes, or you would say no, you're not good enough. I don't believe you're committed enough, you might say. I don't believe you're smart enough to catch the nuances, you might say. I don't know what disciples who actually can be like me, and I'm not sure you fit the bill. What's weird about Jesus is in all these callings, what we see is he doesn't do that. He doesn't wait for people to come to him, and then he chooses whether to reject or accept them. He goes out and finds disciples and actually gives them the choice to accept or reject him, which is astonishing. But I think it's really important for us to know that. Because I think some of us, as we think about coming to the gospel, as we think about coming to the Jesus, to the Christ, I think sometimes what's really in the back of our mind is the fear that he'll reject us. I think what's in the back of our mind is the fear that we're going to come to him and he's going to say, you can't be like me. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You don't fit the bill. What if we actually have a God who pursues us? I love that phrase. What did it say about Philip? Finding Philip. Philip wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus was looking for Philip. I love that. I love that. Jesus calls Peter and Andrew and James and John, and they come, and then they leave. And he goes back to them again and gives them another chance to accept or reject them, and a third time. That's our God. That's our rabbi. He doesn't look and wait for you to come to him so he can reject you if you're not good enough. He says to you, I will make you good enough. Just come. Number two. Jesus absolutely invites difference in his midst. He invites difference in his midst. I read a book a while ago about Lincoln and how he made up his cabinet of people that couldn't stand each other because he really wanted that tension. George Washington did the same thing. He had a cabinet full of Hamilton and Jefferson and Adams. And if you know anything about their relationships, they did not like Madison. There's something, there's certain people who aren't terrified or threatened by difference in their midst, and they who actually find a way to work with it in a way which blesses everybody. And Jesus definitely invites difference in his midst. We don't know who Simon the Zealot is, but we know this. We know he's a zealot. And you know what a zealot is? It's somebody who wants to violently overthrow the Roman government to replace it with the Jewish kingdom. How well do you think a zealot would get along with Matthew the tax collector? They are like on opposite ends of the ideological spectrum. They are well beyond Democrat and Republican differences. They're like libertarian and communists. Anarchist and communists. They're so far apart. How could they ever get along? And then he invites John, who's a disciple of John the Baptist. Some people believe John was a, a priest, could have been a priest was a Levite in the line of priests. Now here's somebody who's very pure about his religion. How's he going to get along with Matthew? Not from a political standpoint, but a theological standpoint. And how's he going to get along with a zealot who's more concerned about the politics than the religion? We just see that throughout Judas Iscariot, some people believe Iscariot's not his name, but it's also an ideology. Judas Iscariot. It's an ideology which also has to do not with overthrowing the government violently, but with becoming an infiltrator, a spy, and overthrowing the government 
by pretending to get along until you're ready to pounce, which might explain why Judas did what he did. We'll get there. But Jesus invites difference in his midst. As he goes out and picks people, he does something almost unheard of. Instead of picking people who were like him, he picked people who weren't even like each other, who didn't even like each other, who would never have been in the same room by choice unless it was to kill each other. We have a, a phrase that I, I stole, but it's okay because I stole it from someone who stole it. I remember listening to a podcast years ago, and they were talking about a book they read. And the interesting thing is I don't remember the book they quoted, and I don't remember the podcast that quoted them, but I remember the phrase, which was, learn to live with the difference in the room. Learn to live with the difference in the room. We are very bad at that. And when I say we, I think I mean humans. But I definitely mean Americans. And I definitely mean evangelicals. Learn to live with the difference in the room. We've been talking about this in our leadership meetings recently. And we've been doing this thing even where we've been, we, we're doing something we're calling discussions with a difference. We're tackling, really, uh, I was calling them hot topics, and one of our leaders said, can't call it that because all I can think of is a store in the mall when I call it that. But <laughs> yeah, these discussions with a difference that we're having are, are kind of topics that, that, that we are not going to come to agreement on. And one of the leaders, when we had our first discussion last time, which was about whether scripture is inerrant, whether it's infallible or not, which I believe it is, but it's okay that not all my leaders do. I believe you can trust scripture and still not believe it's inerrant. I might question how, but that's me. I don't have a problem where they're at. But as we begin to discuss it, one of the leaders said, wait, so you're saying we're not trying to come to the same page? And I said, exactly. We're just trying to learn to live with the difference in the world. It's not, we're not good at it, we're not used to it. But Jesus invited it. Jesus wanted it. And finally, Jesus calls them to follow him above everything. He does say to them, come and leave everything and follow me. Even though I am pretty confident he did not come to strangers and say to them, trust me, leave everything and follow me. Even though I don't think we're supposed to look at somebody who would do that as a good example, but rather as a mark for a cult, I still think that Jesus still called people as they got to know him to leave everything. To follow him above everything else. And let's be clear, that's what leave everything means. Did Peter still have a mother-in-law? Yes. Did he still have a wife? Presumably. Paul seems to indicate that. Did he still have his fishing job? I think so. Because he keeps going back to it even after the resurrection. Did Paul continue to make tents? He did. But they followed him above everything. Nothing else mattered as much as devotion to Christ. And this is the secret between inviting difference and convincing. How can all those people get along? Because at the bottom line, they all followed one person, and it was Jesus. And no other agenda, and no other ideology, and no other convictions, and no other interests, and no other problems, and no other questions, and no other concerns were larger than that. They were devoted completely, 100%, to Jesus. I want to be really clear, 
It is true that a lot of churches have taken this idea of following Jesus, being devoted to him above everything else and every other ideology, and they have subtly used it and changed what you're supposed to be devoted to until you feel like if you're not devoted to their church, that you're missing. And I want to be really clear, I don't think we're invited to do that. I don't think pastors are given permission to put themselves in the place of Jesus. I don't think pastors are given permission to put their church in the place of Jesus. I don't think pastors are given permission to put their pet theologies and ideologies and convictions in the place of Jesus. I think pastors are called to be devoted to Jesus above their own congregations. And I think they're called to encourage their congregations to be devoted to Jesus above their own congregations. And above their pastors. And above their leaders. So we get afraid when someone calls for this kind of devotion that overrides everything else because it sounds cultic. It isn't cultic. It is fanatic. But it's fanatic about God. He's the only one worthy of your complete allegiance. And the problem is, as human beings, we make our allegiance somewhere anyway. Jesus just asked you to change it. Make it to him. And that's why I want to remind you that focus, that's actually one of our core tenets, is that we seek devotion to Christ above all things, including devotion to focus. That's the all things above. That's what the including means. We seek devotion to Christ above devotion to focus. That's really what we want. We want you to get to know Jesus like Peter and James and John and Andrew did, like they all did. And then we want you, when Jesus says, follow me, we want you to say, okay. And we want you to know that you can trust that he can give you fish like that. And we want you to know that you can trust that he can, make, he can, he can work through who you are, the difference that you bring, that he wants to. And he may call you to lay down your fishing nets, or he may call you to continue fishing. But he calls you to be devoted to him. That's what we want. We believe we can live with the difference in the room if we can continue to push people to devotion to Christ above all other agendas. Most churches believe in the value of small groups and a focus church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.